Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa So good afternoon everyone. We've come to the second day of the metta retreat thus far. Hopefully you've had some success in really developing those intentions, those thoughts, and those uh, associated feelings of metta, compassion, appreciative joy, and tempered by equanimity. If not, it's important to, of course, remember that these things don't change overnight. We've been developing this tendency, this habit of anger, annoyance, aversion, what have you, for a very long time, even beyond this life potentially. So these uh, recalibrations, if you want to call them that, they take you know, constant repetition, constant practice. It's something we have to continually work on. So in this talk, I want to touch upon some steps we can take, or I should say that we need to take, in order to successfully develop metta, as well as um, reasons why we should do so in the first place. For me, at least, it's been very important to constantly remind myself of why develop metta. The mind naturally can go towards anger, annoyance, aversion, what have you. Sometimes developing metta isn't a, um, a natural thing. This can vary, of course, between different people. But for me, what has helped so much is reminding myself, constantly reflecting on why, why bother in the first place? What are the reasons behind developing goodwill towards other beings, even those that we don't necessarily... Uh, at first glance, want to develop goodwill towards. Now, the first thing that we have to address before we go anywhere <clears throat> is that in order to develop metta and sustain metta, mindfulness is required. Metta and mindfulness are not two separate, distinct things. In fact, you need one to have the other. Because what happens when we don't have mindfulness is the mind is kind of on this autopilot. And so it will mostly follow the routes that has been doing for the most part in the past. So someone will speak to us in a way we don't like, and our natural tendency will be to respond with anger. Not only the mind, but also potentially even our words and our actions can respond with anger when we're going through our day unaware. When we go through our day with you know, a general awareness of what we are doing at that given moment in time, when we keep our attention fixed and, and an anchor in this present moment, then we have the possibility of changing our reaction towards things. For example, let's say someone speaks to us in a harsh way. They throw insults, curse words, what have you. Our typical unmindful reaction is to really grab on to the content of that speech and say, I, how could he say that? How could she do that? You know, grabbing on to each little thing that we don't like. 
And of course, then, naturally, the mind will respond with anger because we're hearing things that the mind doesn't want to hear, seeing things the mind doesn't want to see, and so on. It's all rooted in that kind of tendency of aversion. But we can also have a mindful attitude towards any kind of displeasing thing in our experience. The Buddha oftentimes talks about the idea of if harsh words come to us, we become mindful of them by just seeing you know, the whole entire way that the uh, experience comes to be. Like because of the ear and a, f- and a, um, a certain sound, there's awareness of um, <clears throat> auditory objects, there's contact, and because of that contact, the feeling arises. So basically, we're looking at this uh, thing coming to us through the lens of the mind. That is to say, dependent upon unwelcome speech or unwelcome actions or what have you, there arises an unpleasant feeling. It, it may sound like a merely semantic kind of thing, but it's getting to something very important, which is getting away from the particular content of whatever we are hearing, seeing, what have you, and instead looking at how does the feeling that arises come to be in the first place. And when we see it in this kind of way, we can also see that phenomena with wisdom. We can see that this is just simply an impermanent thing. We can see also that, for example, our ear consciousness is impermanent. We didn't choose to hear that. It just kind of attacked us unwillingly. How could this uh, you know, consciousness be ours if we can't even choose what it cognizes, what it doesn't cognize? So even in these kinds of things... There's all kinds of room for the development of wisdom. But in any case, when it comes to developing metta instead of our typical reaction of anger towards these kinds of things, we have to first be aware of that anger arising in our mind. Anger starts growing, it starts proliferating when we don't recognize that it's there in the first place. When we don't recognize that anger has arisen in the first place, then you know, the mind spins a whole story about our anger. It really, uh, um, it's like a big gumball. You keep adding more gum to it. It keeps saying bigger, 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 the more content that you add to it. And so the mind will start spinning stories about the anger just from the little annoying thing. It can start as like even a, you know, a minor annoyance about something. You know, the mind comes back to once in a while and says, yeah, I don't really like that, but, you know, okay, I'll just ignore it, just go on my day. But if we don't address that um, emotion where it is, while it's still weak, it has the potential to grow. We start dwelling again and again on whatever annoying thing that we're encountering. And over time, the annoyance evolves into more, uh, uh, what's the word, like heated kind of anger. You can eventually find yourself going crazy because of very, what looks like minor things. Maybe you've had that happen in your meditation even here. You know, someone's being a little noisy, they're breathing loudly, their clothes are making lots of noises, all those kinds of things. And at first it's a little annoying, you know, you don't like that, you expected quiet and all that. But then it grows and you're just sitting there and Eventually, these thoughts can even evolve to say to the mind thinking you want to get up and, you know, I don't know, yell at the person 
or tackle them to the ground so they stop moving, maybe even make them stop breathing, though we, we don't condone that. Please don't make them stop breathing, right? So these things can get out of control very quickly if we don't address them right then and there. And that's where the power of mindfulness comes in. If we can address arisen anger before it consumes the mind, well, it's already that much more of a manageable and addressable thing. <clears throat> what helps with this is attempting to develop these um, intentions of goodwill before something <coughs> displeasing comes to us. Because as I, I think Bhante Ji probably mentioned yesterday, it's quite difficult to develop metta in the face of you know, extremely displeasing and extremely irritating things if we haven't put down the groundwork and the training beforehand. It's like if you think of a, a soldier going to war. You don't send the soldier without any kind of training. That's not going to end very well. We have to have training to be able to confront and address these displeasing and disagreeable aspects of our lives with um, you know, strength, courage, and ultimately, of course, wisdom. And so that's a real a big benefit of the, you know, the sitting or walking practice of developing loving-kindness or developing goodwill, is that it's developing a, a mental habit. We're replacing the typical automatic response of anger, irritation, annoyance. Instead, we're putting... Um, responses of goodwill, responses of compassion, even responses of equanimity in some cases, in its place. And what we find, of course, is that that's a lot nicer for us. It's a lot more pleasant. And so that's getting into the reasons of, you know, why do this in the first place? Because oftentimes we can ask the question, why do we get angry in the first place? On one level, it's because we like being angry. We find anger gratifying to some degree. You find this very often, especially in that what they call uh, that righteous kind of anger. It's, uh, it's really, in a way of speaking, supporting our conceits. Why do we get angry at people? Because I'm right, they're wrong, and I need to show them how they're wrong. The mind gets very, um, get very vengeful in those kinds of instances. Or it could even be that someone, something saying or said that they're doing is undermining our own views. You know, if someone speaks harshly to you, why do you respond with anger? Because you're trying to, uh, you know, you have certain expectations for yourself. I'm a person who deserves to be spoken to in a kind, uh, respectful way. I'm a respectful person. I'm a good person. And someone speaks harshly to you, that's beginning to undermine those kinds of uh, you know, agreeable, pleasant thoughts that we have about ourselves. So in that way, it's all, in fact, rooted in these conceits, these conceits of comparing ourselves to others, saying, I'm better than someone, I'm worse than someone, I'm equal to someone. When people do things that challenge our uh, tightly held views about our position in the world, oftentimes the mind can respond with anger. That anger is gratifying because it's a... Uh, it's trying to get things back to the way they were, trying to reestablish what our you know, position was, whether it be in like a social position or our view of ourselves or any kind of these things. 
And we can also find that the ideas of you know, getting that revenge can be very gratifying. Someone speaks harshly to you once again, and the mind can often sometimes go into saying, oh, well, how can I get back at them even better? You know, I'll one-up them in their harsh speech. I'll show them a thing or two. But what you in fact find is that, well, that, doesn't, that rarely ever pans out in a good way. <clears throat> what instead will oftentimes happen is you'll respond with more harshness, with more anger, and then suddenly they're going to do so too. You can't expect them just to back down. And then suddenly you have this increasing cycle of harsh speech, harsh intentions, kind of growing between the two people or even the groups of people. I, I like to liken it to uh, flushing a toilet. One person's, you know, their mind's in the gutter and they speak harshly, act harshly to you. And if we react harshly and speak harshly back, we're just jumping down the toilet with them so that we can all fight together in the nasty sewer and all be miserable together. That's what it's basically spreading, this web, this net of suffering. The Buddha once had an encounter with a Brahmin of a clan called the Bharadvaja clan. There was a, a certain Brahmin who came to him and spoke very harshly to him, insulted him in various uh, different ways. And the Buddha gave him a simile he said, Brahman, suppose that I give you a gift. Are you obligated to accept it? And the Brahman said, no. If I want to accept it, I can accept it. If I don't want it, I can tell you to take it back. And the Buddha responded, well, so too, you give me this gift of harsh speech, and I don't accept it. You can take it back. It's yours. And we can do the same thing. Just because people speak harshly, act harshly, do things that bother us, doesn't mean that we have to respond in kind. We can call that responding skillfully to unskillful things. We have a choice when unskillful, unwholesome, or unwelcome behaviors come to our presence. We can either you know, take the bait and respond with the same quality of action. Or we can, you know, be the bigger men or bigger women, however you want to put it, and instead respond to these unwholesome things with wholesomeness. And what you'll oftentimes find is that that can kind of stop that whole cycle from spiraling out of control in the first place. You know, you think about arguments you have with people. Certainly, responding with more anger to a person's angry remarks is not going to get anywhere. But when we instead respond with a mind of goodwill, with a mind of compassion, well, there's a possibility that we might defuse the entire situation. Or, at the very least, we'll be able to address and see the situation with more uh, clear vision. Because that's what anger does as well, on a very pragmatic kind of level. It just simply clouds our understanding. It clouds our vision. That's why the Buddha described uh, vyapada, uh, ill will, also anger, as one of the five hindrances towards seeing things as they really are. <clears throat> when our minds are obsessed with anger, we have biased, unclear views of anything, the situation, our own minds, whatever. And what we find then is that we make rash decisions 
unskillful decisions, decisions that aren't based in, you know, well-thought-out lines of reasoning, a.k.a. skillful lines of reasoning. Because, again, it goes back to also that idea of being unmindful, going through our days unaware, letting the mind go on its autopilot. When it does that, when we, don't, when we let that happen, the mind's, of course, naturally going to bark right back whenever we're barked at ourselves. That's why the Buddha described the Dhamma as going against the stream. It goes against our natural tendencies of our mind, uh, natural for lack of a better term. The mind has greed, it has hatred, and it has delusion. And we are working against these very powerful forces, like swimming against a raging river. Yet at the same time, <clears throat> pursuing these kinds of routes is that much more pleasant for us. Now, going back to the idea of seeing anger as pleasant, we see it as pleasant because we don't understand it. We have a wrong view, wrong perception of our uh, anger, of our ill will. Because, in fact, while we may find anger to be something that's gratifying to us for the reasons I went to before, what we, in fact, find is that as a net result, the result's always painful. You look at, uh, you know, next time you feel anger, irritation, look at your mind right then and there. There's dukkha right there, even just in the fact of being angry or being annoyed at all, there's dukkha. So you already have a problem. Never mind the results of what comes when we act with anger in our minds. That only exacerbates the problem even further. I mentioned that before. We act and speak out of anger. We don't look at the situation in a proper way. And we find ourselves making even more unskillful decisions, making more mistakes, bringing further suffering to ourselves in the form of regrets, remorse, and like that. And also bringing that suffering to other people through our words, through our speech, or through just generally having an irritated mind. And so responding with anger, having anger, contrary to what we may initially believe of liking and enjoying our anger, it is in fact one of our worst and most destructive enemies. It can be so often that, you know, even in the, the snap of a finger, if we let anger dictate our actions, that so many issues can come about. You know, you say one thing that you didn't really mean it, maybe you meant it a little bit, but it wasn't very tact, out of anger, right? And then suddenly you've destroyed how many relationships with other people because of that one thing. And then you have to go work and repair your relationships, and it takes time, and you have to apologize, and it's all this work that we make for ourselves. When we, when we let this happen, when we let this go uncontrolled, I'm uh, generally the kind of person who likes to have the you know, notion of uh, taking the smart way of things like the path of least resistance. Not to say that, you know, to be lazy, but rather more along the lines like, if there's work to do and it doesn't need to be done, then don't do it. So that kind of reflection was always nice for me, just seeing like, you know, if I, get, if I respond with anger, I'm going to make a lot more work for myself right now. So how about I try and not do that? 
it may sound weird, may even sound juvenile to talk to yourself like that, but these are the kinds of rationalizations that can help us to manage arisen anger and also understand why we should replace anger with goodwill. We can think then in terms of the positive aspect of this too. What are the benefits of having goodwill? The Buddha, in fact, there's a sutta that the Buddha goes into 11 such benefits of practicing metta. <clears throat> One of those that's relevant to what we're, uh, the line of speaking that we're going through right now, is that one becomes more pleasing to others, be other humans, other even celestial beings. So instead of being known as, you know, the person who's angry and irritable and such things, when we develop a mind of goodwill, when we practice goodwill, we can instead become known as that compassionate man or the compassionate woman, the person who has the best interests of others in their mind, who works to help others out as they uh, so can. <clears throat> we find then that not only are we known in such a way, you know, in this very mundane way of having a better reputation, but also our relationships with others are that much more fulfilling, that much more meaningful, that much more stable. Because, you know, in any relationship, even the best ones, I'm not talking about even romantic, just any kind of social relationship, there's always going to be disagreements about things. It's inevitable. That's just the nature of social relationships. But if we have that goodwill already established in our minds, well, we don't have to let those disagreements turn into bickering and arguments and quarrels and what the Buddha calls stabbing each other with verbal daggers. That's a very uh, uh, profound kind of imagery, stabbing people with verbal daggers. These things can hurt just as much, maybe even more, than uh, actual daggers. At least with an actual dagger, you know, you go to the hospital, they bandage it up, and you're generally okay. You get the wrong words from the wrong person, and you can keep that for years. You can keep that injury for years. So it's like that old adah, sticks and stones break my bones, but words can never hurt me. No, that's a lie. That's just what your teacher told you to try and make you feel better at the time. These things can hurt, and we need to keep that in mind, not only for our own words, but for the words of others. We have to guard our minds from that kind of injury that we... Uh, can receive. Now, I also mentioned during my guided meditation, thinking about when it comes to developing metta towards people, how we have to have those intentions kind of supported by these reasons, these rationalizations for metta. <clears throat> That's how my practice has been successful, not just kind of a the idea of, you know, may all beings be well, may all beings be well, may all beings be well, like a mantra. Because you've, you can find yourself getting angry and just trying to say those words and it's not doing anything because you don't know why you shouldn't be angry. And you, you get to be like this. May all beings be well, happy and peaceful. And you're just, it's not, not doing anything because you're just trying, you're kind of doing it by brute force. What I've found to be most helpful is you know, saying those words to get those kinds of thoughts going as needed, but also behind that kind of like supporting, propping it up, is asking, you know, why should 
beings be well, happy, and peaceful. For me, it just wasn't something that necessarily came naturally. So the one that I mentioned during my guided meditation that has been extremely important for me to think about is this idea of why people do things. Why do people do anything? Generally, their operational logic, so to say, is that they seek pleasure and avoid pain. If there's one unifying aspect of being, it's that they generally do that. Now, of course, as I mentioned also, many times, in fact, most of the time, <clears throat> beings don't go about that in the right way. They go about seeking pleasure by harming others, by bringing others down, or even by just harming themselves, even though they don't see it like that. There's a menagerie of examples of this. We can ask, like, why do people get addicted to things like alcohol? Because that's how they're seeking pleasure. They're seeking pleasure by trying to forget whatever pain that brought them to take up, you know, alcoholic kind of drinking. So even though on some level it's gratifying to, you know, be drunk and, you know, fun time, but so on. In fact, what it's covering up is actually a greater amount of suffering. And so from a kind of utilitarian point of view, that kind of alcoholic is in fact harming themselves more than they're helping themselves, even though in their minds they're doing, you know, whatever, coping however they can. And we can do the same thing, look at the same reflection in terms of those who speak harshly, those who, you know, do unskillful things that harm those, us and harm those we um, are friendly with, and that gets us, you know, upset, irritated, and angry as well. We'll go back to the idea of the harsh speech. Why do people speak harshly to other people? Because on some level, they, they find it pleasant. Or at the very least, they find it that the only way they know how to deal with their arisen pain at that given time. It's kind of two sides of the same coin. Seeking pleasure, avoiding pain. Those things can manifest themselves in similar ways. They're all uh, manifestations of the mind seeking pleasure, pleasant feelings. So people speak harshly to others at the root for the reason that they are having you know, difficult emotions arise in themselves. Anger, jealousy, greed, any of these kinds of things. And these harsh words become kind of like an, an, a spillage of the mind. They don't know what else to do. These thoughts are, you know, building, building, building in the mind. There's nowhere to let them go. And oftentimes what will come out is harsh speech, harsh action, harmful action, harmful speech. And in fact, instead of our typical reaction to these things being angry and upset, when we look at it in this kind of way, it's, it's more of a tragic situation than anything. We see these people these beings who aren't equipped to deal with the pain of everyday life. And so what do they do? They just make more pain for themselves. When we see things in this way, compassion is something that can arise quite naturally. Because we're not looking at them as, oh, you're a bad person, that kind of labeling anymore. Instead, we're seeing it as you are a suffering person. Because you are a suffering person, and you're not equipped to, to handle that, you're doing these things that bring harm to yourself, bring harm to others. 
from there then, the arising of compassion is that so much easier to do when we don't, you know, immediately label, oh, you're just an evil or you're a bad person. That's like your inherent nature or something like that. That's completely off base. Anyone is a combination of skillful and unskillful qualities when we boil it down. There's no inherent goodness, inherent evilness in people. There's just the efficacy and the quality of their you know, actions by body, speech, and mind. It was the same thing that, uh, you know, this reflection is quite personal for me because it really helped me to get over feelings of, uh, you know, how could someone have done that to me? How could someone have said that to me? And so on. You know, there was a, uh, a certain person who basically, it was kind of one of those things where it's like, maybe you've had this happen. You, someone, they say something or do something you don't appreciate. You try and bring it up to them and they say, oh, well, you know, I was just joking or, you know, you're so sensitive. It's your problem, that kind of thing. It's kind of a very common trait of narcissists, especially. So I was really just floundering in anger because of, the, you know, this person. And fortunately, eventually they were removed by my li- from my life because, you know, they were doing that with everyone, too, for various reasons. But still the anger remained. I thought that, yeah, okay, this person's gone now, now I can be happy. But I was uh, unpleasantly surprised that the anger decided to stick around. It got even to a point where I considered, you know, whether I even wanted to, you know, uh, continue doing what I was doing at the time, like quit my job or something like that, because I just couldn't handle the association of, oh, this happened at this place. But thinking about this, you know, seeing that, trying to understand that, you know, the reason this person did this was because of their own inability to deal with their own suffering, their, their own delusions. It allowed me to really separate myself again from that labeling of, oh, you or he was, or he or she was evil. He or she was bad. I deserve better. All those kinds of things. And it comes down also to seeing these qualities in ourselves. Because assuming none of you are enlightened, you go through the same thing. I know I still go through the same thing. Where, you know, we, we're heedless, the anger, it, anger comes into the mind, we don't control it, we don't restrain it. And then we make trob- trouble for ourselves. So these kinds of reflections are not a matter of, oh, look at me, I'm so very beyond these things, I'm so holy, and you are all not. It's instead putting on the same shoes and recognizing that we are sitting in the same shoes. Seeing that, you know, how it's harder to get angry at people because you realize, oh, well, I'm susceptible to that too. I have the potential to do that because I still have the roots of aversion, the roots of hatred in me. And it also gives us the, all that more reason to uh, work on our own defilements. You know, there's two kinds of role models, positive role models, negative role models. And negative role models don't always get the attention they deserve. You know, seeing a person who conducts themselves, who holds themselves in a way that we can clearly recognize is not skillful, we can reflect on that in a skillful way as well, just like with anything. We can say, you know, I see this person doing this, but I don't want to do that because I recognize the danger of doing that the drawback of doing that, how what they are doing is causing suffering. 
And so we can reuse those kinds of people in the same way as a, a, um, a motivation to improve ourselves, to purify our own minds. Because when it comes down to it also, that's what's most important, purifying our own minds. A lot of times people will try and address their anger through the wrong kind of end of the stick. They'll say, oh, I'm angry about this thing or this person, so I'm going to fix them. I'm going to fix that thing, whether it be giving them a piece of our minds or um, punching them in the face. I don't recommend that one, but people do it. These are the, the things we try and do to resolve our anger. It's not to say, of course, that if, you know, if someone does something to upset you, you shouldn't talk to them about it if they're that kind of person who's open to the thing. I'm not saying to be a doormat. Yet, in an ultimate analysis of things, the only thing we have power over is our own minds. We can develop in our minds in such a way that whatever comes to us, we don't have to get affected by it. We can't always change what things we experience, but we can, al we can always have the possibility of changing the lens through which we experience things. Whether we have a lens of hatred or a lens of goodwill, that's always something we can change, even though it's a bit difficult to do at times, and maybe sometimes we don't even feel like doing it. We just want to you know, take the path of least resistance and go with our anger, because it's hard to fight against anger. At the same time, we absolutely must do so. <clears throat> Another reflection that really struck me was just the, really the stupidity of anger, the futility of anger. You know, we, can, we, we get angry and we follow our anger because we think it's going to get something done, that it's going to fix the problem at hand. That's what people say when they think of righteous anger, that we, we need that kind of anger to, you know, change things and get things done. But the Buddha clearly says, even in the, you know, there's a, the third and fourth verse of the Dhammapada that goes something like this. Um, no, I'm sorry, let's talk about the fifth one. The fifth verse of the Dhammapada goes, Nahi veirena veirani samanti da kudhachanang aveirena cha samanti esa dhammo sanantano. Anger is never appeased, or I'm sorry, hatred is never appeased by anger in this world. Only by non-anger, non-hatred, is hatred appeased. This is an eternal law. So we follow our anger thinking that, you know, eventually we'll get rid of our anger if we just let it out on something. But what we in fact find is that the more that we follow our anger, well, it may work for a little while, you know, it's we get some cathartic kind of release. But in fact, sooner or later, that tendency of hatred in the mind comes back. And we may even get more angry than we were the last time. It's the same thing with any kind of uh, craving, which is what anger is essentially rooted in. So long as we indulge in that, those kinds of things, they're going to come back stronger, come back with a vengeance in our minds. And also, we can think of the idea of, you know, are the things we get angry about, are they, are they really worth getting angry about? A great deal of the time, no. You know, you, think, you can think about, you know, your situation in the world. You're here, born, subject to suffering, subject to old age, illness, and death. 
all these kinds of you know, very heavy, very powerful things. And you find yourself getting angry because you're stuck in traffic. Like, do you see the discrepancy here? So many of the things we get angry about are just so meaningless, so futile. And you can think about that. Like, why am I getting angry about this? It becomes more of a comedy than anything else, seeing how the mind reacts to these little tiny things. I remember when I uh, first came to Bhavana, I was the uh, kitchen manager. And, uh, you know, so I um, bought some almond milk. Uh, peop- you know, people around here drink a lot of almond milk because it's a nice dairy alternative. And, uh, you know, one person said to me, like, I bought this with, uh, unsweetened vanilla kind of almond milk. But he said, you know, oh, you know, I, I-, I can't have the vanilla kind. I only can have the original kind. In my mind, I was like, how can you be like that? It's just that's a petty thing. You're such an idiot or whatever, these kinds of things. I had a lot of anger issues when I came here, if you didn't notice already. <laughs> but yeah, later, you know, I just looked back at it like I, I thought to myself, I kind of shook my head and I said, I got angry over someone's brand of almond milk. This is ridiculous. <laughs> and I, I, I just laughed. It took a little while, but I, I eventually laughed at the whole thing, how, how silly it was. And that brings us to another thing, too. You know, especially as practitioners of the Dhamma, we have our, really have our work cut out for us, you know, attaining the sweet bliss of Nibbana. There's a lot to that. Anger and giving rise to and following anger is entirely counterproductive to those aims. Because, as I said before, anger clouds the mind so that we can't see things properly with wisdom. Hence, we get ourselves more mired in suffering arisen right then and there, and also suffering in the future by our non-understanding of things. So in that kind of regard, not only is anger painful, but it's also entirely counterproductive to those things that we wish to achieve and accomplish in our lives. This is... This is the reason why anger is utterly futile, is that it brings us, in fact, in the totally wrong direction, so long as we nourish that and nurture it. And you just eventually, you know, you think about that enough and you really orient your life in terms of these skillful and proper goals. And suddenly, even when anger arises towards petty things, you recognize it immediately and say, oh, you don't have to worry about that. Not a big deal. Let it go. In his way of speaking, you have more important things to worry about than whatever petty thing the mind might decide to grab on. <clears throat> What's important to uh, conclude on with all these is that all these things are only for managing anger. Managing anger is certainly an important skill to have, but at the same time, managing anger is different than eradicating anger. And in order to eradicate anger, we need to understand anger, understand hatred. Basically, why do we get angry? Why is there this root of hatred? And what I mentioned previously was that a great deal of it's all rooted in craving. It's all rooted in the conceit I am, which are two quite closely linked things. We go back to our previous examples. Think again, you know, we get angry at someone because they speak harshly to us. 
When that happens, we have to look at the mind and see what's going on. Why is this anger arising? And what we'll find is because of craving or its close cousin expectations. We have an expectation of things in the world. Things in the world are going to go like this and they're going to go like that. And if they don't go like that, I'll be upset. Well, you can pretty clearly see how that's a recipe for suffering. Because no matter what kinds of wishes expectations we have for the world, the world doesn't care. Things are just going to go as they go. It's attacking things from the wrong end to try and fix all that. But instead what we can see is, oh, because of that craving, because of that expectation, there is this this suffering in my mind, whether it be a gross manifestation of anger or the subtlest kind of aversion towards something. It's all, in fact, rooted in the same thing. And that's also closely related to um, what the Buddha calls mana, uh, usually translated as conceit. There are three conceits that the Buddha speaks about. There's the conceit, I am better. There's the conceit, I am equal. And there's a conceit, I am worse. A lot of times, our anger arises because of... uh, trying to reestablish our previously held views and opinions regarding ourselves. So, you know, someone who you perceive as lesser than you or worse than you starts attacking you. And you say, who are you to say that to me? You little peon, whelpling, whatever you call them. Or maybe someone, you know, who you perceive as better than you does the same thing. And then you can have sadness saying, oh, they're right. I'm just terrible. I'm no good. And all these kinds of things. So, at the root of it, it's those, that, that comparative kind of mind comparing ourselves to others that is um, leading to the openings for these kinds of things. It's all a very extremely deep subject, and perhaps I made a mistake by even trying to broach it in the short amount of time we have. But I think it is important to see how our sense of self does get involved in these kinds of uh, you know, unwholesome states and defilements. Because then we start, we can start exploring, you know, the uh, the nature of that self view, self identity itself. Now, with regards to metta, what we'll find, of course, is that as we continue to practice, you know, we get better at it. It becomes more easy to cultivate those kinds of thoughts and intentions. <clears throat> and what you'll find hopefully, is that anger will arise less often. And when it does arise, it comes much less strongly as well. Cultivating metta, practicing metta, is a part of right effort. The Buddha gives us right effort in terms of removing unwholesome states, preventing their arising, developing wholesome states, and bringing them to perfection. And the practice of metta in various ways, as well as the other um, four brahma-viharas, as they're called, contributes to this. We use metta to remove arisen anger and make it so that anger doesn't arise often or as strongly, even to a point when we finally understand hatred and its roots, even to a point where anger never arises again. And instead, we replace it with something that's more skillful, more wholesome, more pleasant, which is thoughts of goodwill, thoughts of compassion. 
and eventually we can even bring those things to perfection. We talked about having compassion for other people through various reflections, but in fact, it's the Buddha and his enlightened disciples who have reached the culmination of compassion. When we think about compassion, it's generally this idea of seeing someone's you know, suffering. By seeing someone's suffering, we replace irritation and anger with compassion, seeing how you know, this being is suffering. But as beings who have suffering ourselves, we have a limited scope of that. But the Buddha and the Arahants, his enlightened disciples, having completely overcome suffering, know the full extent of suffering. So they can be compassionate even towards those who don't even know they're suffering. Because those, those enlightened beings have seen the, even the most subtle aspects of um, suffering. And so they have that wide, broad, entirely full view of what dukkha is. And by seeing that, they have, they're described as having the, you know, the ultimate compassion, the perfection of compassion, because they see and can recognize the suffering in anyone, because they've been through it all, and they've gotten rid of it all, too. And we should be very grateful for that, because initially, <clears throat> the story goes that Siddhartha Gautama, the uh, Buddha-to-be, once he attained his enlightenment, you know, he wasn't terribly interested in teaching the Dhamma. His mind initially uh, you know, looked around and saw lots of beings really mired in ignorance, even to a point where he didn't think he could do anything about it. So he, his mind initially went to the idea of you know, going to a nice little forest grove and um, you know, having jhana all day or abiding pleasantly like that and you know, just wait till he's, you know, the body breaks up and have a nice time. But... There was a certain Brahma, Brahma Sahampati, who came to the Buddha and basically implored the Buddha to say, look, there's a lot of ignorance, a lot of delusion in the world, sure. But there's also some who understand what you have to say. Some people with what he described as having little dust in their eyes. And the Buddha, seeing this, the, the words that are used as out of compassion for the world, he decided to teach the Dhamma. That was the, the motivation for teaching. He didn't do it to you know, get famous, get rich, have a nice following. He did it out of this perfection of compassion. That's one of the perfections that he developed through his, his many lives, one of the uh, paramis. And so it's through that perfection of compassion that we find that we can truly, genuinely help other people. Because that's another important aspect of this metta practice. <clears throat> Realizing that no matter how much we may cultivate the wish for beings to be well, happy, and peaceful, ultimately, it comes down to them. Even the Buddha couldn't magically make people stop suffering. It's uh, like he could point to the moon, but he couldn't make people look at the moon. That's sometimes something that's mentioned so even the Buddha had to, you know, instruct people on how to alleviate their suffering. And then it wasn't automatic. Those people had to put forth the effort to see where he was coming from, establish themselves in that right view, that right understanding. And so we have to keep that in mind 
the same way. That's where that fourth Brahma Vihara equanimity comes into mind. Because no matter how much we may wish it, beings will suffer if they make suffering their choice, if they don't put forth the effort to alleviate their own suffering. And that comes through purifying the mind. That's what the, the root of any kind of suffering is, is those defilements in the mind from that individual perspective. And so in that way, equanimity helps us to you know, avoid overshooting the mark, where we you know, have so much compassion that we start crying about the suffering of others, and then we get caught up in those emotions, and we have pain, and to get rid of that pain, we do unwholesome things to escape the pain, and that whole cycle continues. So it's that balance I mentioned during the guided meditation too. On one hand, we're trying to bring our minds away from the extreme of anger, aversion, irritation, bring them more you know, towards the center of things, towards a kind of cooled goodwill, a um, benevolent goodwill, an uh, unbiased goodwill, kind of like the sun, how it shines on all things you know, equally, uh, never mind, you know, latitude, longitude, all that. <laughs> anyway, how it, it shines in all things equally and without discrimination. It doesn't say, oh, I'm not going to shine there. I don't like that place, bad city. And we're on the other hand, also, we're trying to get away from this other extreme of, you know, seeing suffering and falling into suffering ourselves by recognizing that in the ultimate analysis, each being is responsible for their own suffering. Of course, it doesn't mean, you know, you see someone who's like broken their leg and you say, well, you know, your, your suffering's your own friend. I can't do anything for you. You know, it's not, not that insane. But realizing that, you know, we can help people even in these kinds of material ways, give them food, give them shelter. But it still comes down to the fact that they have dukkha if their minds are not developed to the point where they can be free from that. So we're balancing from between that anger in the center, and also that um, kind of non-attachment suffused with goodwill, bringing that into the center too. See why we do that? I completely made that up, by the way, but it sounds nice, right? Yeah. And so with that, friends, I wish you the best of luck throughout the rest of, <laughs> the rest of this retreat, and I hope that you are able to Restrain your anger, control your anger, and eventually overcome your anger with the bliss of Nibbana. Thank you.